وقولكم ليه dead simple here there's one command there's one main directive in this whole thing so rather than trying to do anything too complicated we're just going to hit the nail straight on the head chapter 4 verse 1 therefore since Christ suffered in his body arm yourselves also with the same attitude what is the command? very simple arm yourself arm yourself if my Amy was out the back there was in here now she would love this because when she hears that she would want nothing more than to strut down Wezo with a dagger in her thingy a catapult in her hand and a big powerful crossbow hanging over her back arm yourself sounds a bit too extreme doesn't it arm yourself people would think you're a little bit weird if you were to arm yourself and wander around speak or would they I don't know, maybe it's a good idea. We have these, this idea, and if there's any Americans in the room, I do apologise, the sort of redneck from sort of, I don't know, South Carolina, who's sort of packing a 12-bore shotgun behind there and marching out to the grocery store with a Magnum 357 there. A bit excessive, isn't it? A bit extreme. Why would we need to arm ourselves? Uh, well, if you're told to arm yourself, it's because you know things aren't safe. You know there's danger around, and you know there is risk. Here, the Apostle Peter is saying to believers in a little church like this one, in the middle of a big world that lives in a different way to people who follow Jesus, he's saying, arm yourself. You're going to find this isn't with weaponry of this world. This isn't sort of, you know, retreat into the countryside, build big fences, have a guard there, and wait for Jesus to return. We're not talking like that. We're going to find a different kind of arming that needs to be done. You'll find in the Bible there's plenty of images of what the Christian community looks like. One of it is as a temple. We've heard that today, haven't we? We're a, a building built together to stand for Jesus. Another is as a family, a family of believers. Another one is as a household, a broad household, where we stand built on the promises of Jesus. But one here is an armed resistance. Okay, so think uh, enemy occupying force people working under the radar for the true king or the true government. I thought about doing self-defence, saying this is actually titling this self-defence, but it's just not done quite hit the nail on the head, because self-defence is very me-orientated and just protecting me. Now, the whole thrust of these verses we're looking at here is an armed resistance who are working together corporately, consciously, for a cause, not just doing self-defence. Self-defence really works anyway. So, this is your big title for today. Armed resistance. Okay, let's just read this bit of the Bible through together again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. If you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, corrosion, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this, is, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that I might be judged according to men in regarding to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit.
Okay, that's God's word to us. The big title is Be an Armed Resistance. Now I realise even as I say that, that's really frustrating to you. Because the bottom line is you and I, we want to settle down into a kind of peacetime mentality, a passivity. Of just let life just go with the flow. I don't want to have to get up and do anything. I don't want to have to resist anybody. I don't want to be armed. I just want to live and let live. And I wish it wasn't so, but living on planet Earth, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, means you're going to have to be an armed resistance, or you're just going to capitulate, die, and go cold. I wish it wasn't as direct as that, but Peter couldn't have been more clear, could he? So far in this letter, what he's been saying is Jesus, the true ruler of planet Earth, grabs a hold of people like you and me for no reason other than he is merciful, and he draws them, he calls them into his new re-established kingdom rule. And he sets them apart to be Jesus' people. So banish any ideas that Christianity is just adopting a few morals and coming to church every now and again. It's a radical change of allegiance where you come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is marked by a willingness to love and even suffer for people who would declare themselves your enemies. And we found that all the way through. We found this so much so that we're supposed to humbly submit, be respectful, move towards even people who will revile us, be our enemies, cruel and wicked. And so there'll be this funny juxtaposition if you're a believer. On the one hand, people will be very angry with you, but they'll be hugely respectful of you. They'll hate you because of what you, uh, the way you live and the, the way you try to serve and love them, even when they're being nasty to you. But what will happen is there'll be a sort of respect that wins a hearing. So we heard in the middle of chapter 3, we heard, live, live such good lives amongst the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, so this is chapter 2, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. In chapter 3 we find, set apart Jesus as Lord, in your heart, set apart him as Lord, so much so, that it causes people to ask questions. What is it that they live for? What is driving them? What is making them different? And so what we're being told here is that to live for Jesus in this world will invite questions and quite often hardships because people who don't like Jesus will rage against you in the midst of this. So here we're being told, we've just got to this point in the letter where Peter says, you need to be an armed resistant. This is how you're going to get through it. You will get it in the neck. Chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. His willingness to suffer and put himself on the line for other people will, must be your attitude and is your pattern. But it also, if you adopt that willingness to do that, it says something about spiritual reality at work in your life. And the spiritual reality is this, second half of verse 1, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What on earth does that mean? Okay? I like this quote. I'd like to say I made it myself. I'm not that clever. Are you ready? Those of you taking notes, are you ready? I'll say it slowly. When you make choices for the sake of Jesus that expose you to loss, risk, disadvantage, and suffering, that is a huge demonstration that Christ is who you belong to and you're not under the rule of sin anymore. Shall I say that again? 
When you make choices for the sake of Jesus that expose you to loss, risk, disadvantage and suffering, that is a huge demonstration that Christ is who you are living for and you are not under the power of sin anymore. Does that make sense? It's a huge demonstration, or sorry, it's a huge disarmament of, of, of the, the power and attitude of, of, a, of a godless attitude in your life. You sort of, in that moment, when you stand up for Jesus and say, I don't care, I don't care what the risk is, I'm going to do it anyway, I'm going to live honouring him above all things, in that moment, you get wonderfully freed. There's only so much they can do to you. You're done sitting under the influence and being slapped about by the attitude, power and influence of sin. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with that same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. So what is this whole sermon about? Be an armed resistance. Not just on your own, together. That's what our church family should be. Encouraging one another day after day, week after week, to be an armed resistance. No passivity here. No kicking back on sun lounges spiritually here. Peacetime is coming, but it's not here yet. Don't be fooled into thinking it is. And of course you know that in your life, don't you? Which of us don't feel the pull, the allure, the seduction of just living as if this life is all there is? And that the shiny, happy, smiley things of this world might actually satisfy us. They never do, do they? Oh, but you know the pull. Your kids, when they watch you, they see you being pulled, don't they? And we model to them all too often, don't be an armed resistance, just be a passive, go with the flow and hope for the best. Don't trust in Jesus in the functional moment. So we're going to see two points for the rest of our time. The first one is much longer than the second, so don't panic. Okay, the first one we're going to see is why you're an armed resistance. That comes up in verse 2, 3, and 4. And then we're going to see how you can be an armed resistance. Let's have a look at verse 2 here. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, or uh, human passions, the Greek word epithumia, but rather for the will of God. Every day, you and I are being called to live for something. We talk about this all the time. And you feel the draw and the pull of it, don't you? And here we're being told that it's binary. It's just one or the other. It's in a category of A or it's in a category of B. And category A is pursuing selfish, human, out-of-control desires where you seek in those things to find life. If I have this, if I can get that... And it's usually a good thing that has run out of control. If I've got that, then I feel a whole person. Or, that's option A. Option B is, live for the will of God. What does the will of God mean? It means his plan for life on planet Earth. Living under him as the good, gracious Lord and King. It means submitting to to him in the day-to-day choices and opportunities that you have in life. So option A is, be a creature of instinct who is jumping on every desire they can find to satisfy and fulfil. Number two, surrender yourself to God and trust in Him. Follow His way and believe His vision for this life and the next. Now before you became a Christian, if you are one here today, your choices were totally shaped by your instinct. 
And remember, we've got an instinct for many, many good things. Drivers that motivate us, things that get us up out of bed in the morning, they could be really good things, but they can elevate themselves to a point where they take over and control. And that's what that word, evil desires, means. It's epithumia, over-desires. Uh, epi, as in epicenter, you know, the epicenter of, of, of an earthquake, a tsunami or something like that. Epi is the place where it blows out from. This is something that is an over-inordinate desire, something for something good. So it could be that at all costs, you've got to feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, you freak out. Safe is good. Or it could be comforts. Or it could be a relationship. And you say, you know, I've got to have somebody there to look after me. And you're prepared to do all kinds of silly things and surrender all kinds of things that you're not supposed to surrender in order to have that person get that sense that you are looked after. It could be food, it could be achievement, it could be power, it could be status. Interestingly, all of those things are good gifts from God. But you don't go to God and you don't want God first. You want those things and if you can angle God to help you get them, you'll come and listen to the gospel, which is terrible because you're just trying to use God, or else you'll just, you'll just pursue them and pursue them and pursue them. I suppose it'd be fair to say we become addicts. They run out of control, and your control centre is totally screwed up. You can't change, you're trapped in it. There's a spiritual dynamic here that is in play. And Peter comes along and says, that is how you used to be until a great, massive intervention. Something changed. Jesus and the power of the Spirit broke in. It's not because you suddenly came up with a ten-step plan to to fix yourself, because you can't. The power of God broke in and changed you at a deep level. In chapter 1 he calls this being born again. Christ's death means I have a new control centre. And what used to seem ugly and irrelevant to me, i.e. God and his grace, now seems beautiful. Doesn't it? The idea in the Bible. But now, you want to devour God's word and hear his hopes and his promises to you. Suddenly God's will becomes a beautiful thing and his plan for the earth, as you ponder it, becomes soul-satisfying in a way that all those other evil desires that you pursued and went after at all costs, just never sat- they never satisfied, but he does. So what's all this about armed resistance? Well, it's simple, isn't it? Peter is saying that although this change has come about in your life, though you've got a new control centre, you still live in enemy-occupied territory, and they're all trying to pull you to their priority. So you've got sin still dwelling within you, but don't we know it painfully? You've got sin outside of you, and people saying, live for these things. You've got a world that seems to just go helter-skelter away from the Lord, and I wish it wasn't so, but as a believer, I constantly feel the tug of these things. Live for this, find your soul satisfaction in that, and I'm not the only one, am I? Even if you just look back, scan back over this week, think about the things that have got your goats, think about the things that you've worried about, think about the things that have made you angry. That all tells a story about where you go to for refuge. What you see is your salvation plan. Peace time is coming, but it's not here yet. Now, I wish this wasn't so, but I feel the seductive tug of sin, and so do you. I constantly seem to be believing that sin won't hurt me or the other people around me. 
that sort of putting God in a box somewhere and saving him for a Sunday morning or pulling him out when I'm desperate I constantly think that will work for me but it won't he won't let it work for me thankfully he loves me too much for that so let me ask you have you armed yourself or are you walking in naivety it's a terrible thing to be naive isn't it people hoodwink us and get the better of us can I ask you how naive are you because you are because sin is deceitful isn't it it tricks us in what ways are you naive have you armed yourself let me just give you a couple of ways in which as Christians just a couple of examples that as Christians and perhaps if this is for people who are believers here let's say that you let's say you face some disappointment and which of us doesn't at one point or another but if as you face disappointments, you feel absolutely hopeless, not just hurt, but hopeless, and it affects your choices through the day, it affects what time in the day you get up, it affects how you spend your money or the, the mood in the whole house. If it's the controlling influence, what does that tell you? It might tell you, you, sorry, you might know in your head and in your, uh, up here in your knowledge, you might know that God has given you his kingdom, but you're not armed with that truth, are you, in that moment. The thing that you're being ruled by is the sense of loss of that thing that you want. Let me give you another example. What happens about the times when you get criticised? And in that moment when you're criticised, what do you do? You feel this thing welling up inside you. So just try and hold the pages still for us, will you, darling? You get yourself, you feel criticised, you find it welling up inside of you, and you hit out, you lash out. Now it could be that on a Sunday morning you sing those songs that we've been singing already about how God is justified, and how you are wonderfully accepted in his sight, and he knows the worst about you, and has paid your sin, and you are clean before him, but you haven't armed yourself in that moment with that, have you? You haven't put on an armed resistance, you've left it in the cupboard. You've put your armour in the cupboard. You put the spiritual truth and reality away and so as you face that criticism you're at the whim of your simple desires. You see? So Peter says enough. He says rebel against it. Verse 3. Look at that. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans is a catch-all phrase for the nations who stand with no regard to the Lord Jesus Christ and live as if he doesn't. He said, enough, before you became a believer, you've done it enough. Don't go there. Rebel against it. Rebel against your old sinful past, against the world's demands, against the devil's schemes. Put up a fight. If you're a parent here, listen up. Francis Schaeffer, a prominent Christian author, said, it is the duty of every Christian parent to teach their kids how to rebel. Bethany, Bethany, you need to get in your mummy and daddy's face and say, teach me how to rebel. And the sad indictment against us parents is too often we teach our kids how to coalesce and satisfy their own selfish, simple desires. They watch us doing it all the time, and rather than watching us rebelling against our stinking bad attitudes and our, our making small of the glory and greatness of Jesus, instead of watching us rebel against that, they watch us just coalesce with it, don't they? Listen, parent, if you haven't figured out how this week you're going to say no and rebel against the demands 
of a sinful and godless world, then you're not doing your duty as a parent. If you're a Christian parent, you've got to teach your kids that one way or another. Is that clear enough? There's your mission, there's your task this week. Find a way that you're going to teach your kids how to rebel. Not against the law, uh, the law and the laws, but against the sinful passions of this world. Does that make sense? And he gives us a list, doesn't he? Look at this. Okay, I could do a sermon on each, but I've realised that we've got relative youngsters in here. Now let's, when we go through this list, don't listen and look at this list as a, as a sort of a ladder of righteousness whereby we look down on people. That's not what it's here for because we've got other bits of the New Testament said, by the way you people, when Jesus found you, you were all doing this anyway, so you know no better than anybody else. But what we, this list is here to say is if you're naming Jesus as Lord, if you're saying you, you've set apart, chapter 3, 15, verse 15, you've set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart, then these actions will be nowhere near you. And if they are somewhere near you, somebody like me or Matthew or your kids or Mark or whoever it is, one of the elders can come along and say, listen, you know you're saying you, you've set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Help me understand this. How are you fitting that with that? Do we see? They, they just don't go together. Whatever you do, don't say you believe and trust Jesus as your Lord and go about like that. Because it's making a mockery of him and it's doing harm to the body of believers. So let's have a look at the little list. Uh, there we are in verse 4. Uh, sorry, verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. First of all, living in debauchery or sensuality. Can I make it very clear that if you love the Lord Jesus, premarital sex is out. There should be nobody part of this church family who says, I've set Jesus apart as my Lord, who even thinks about going there. But of course there's other ways to try to live in debauchery, isn't there? So whether it's pornography or the titillation of films and movies, don't go there. You've, enough of that. It makes a mockery of the way the Lord has made us. Can I tell you that you, the further you push yourself into those things, the more it will dehumanise the way you go about doing relationship. It does harm to you. It does harm to the way in which you build relationships. It does harm to the way in which you build intimacy and it utterly dishonours Jesus. It is base. Does this mean, I'm telling you, to go out and, and, and shake your finger in a cocky and arrogant way at the people who are out night after night on Friday and Saturdays, the thousands who gather down in town just to go out and sleep around? No, 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 no. I'm telling you that that is shameful. But I'm telling you that we don't get to stand and sit as judge we get to say, thank you Jesus, that you've called me to something more beautiful, more full of hope, and I ain't going there. I ain't going there. Next one. Lusts or passions. Can you see that there? Lusts. A lust is something, it, it isn't just sexual, a lust is something that you have to have. Otherwise, your mind gets no rest. Your mind dwells upon it. All your energy, rather than thinking about glorifying God, is bent towards trying to figure out how you're going to satisfy this lust for that. It warps you. It could be something very good, like getting the right exam results. 
It could be something wonderful, like um, achievement in church ministry and being recognised as a good storyteller. It could be, I've mentioned comfort and power. It could be any good thing, but if it's the thing that sort of captures your emotional energies, it's got a control on you and it is mastering you. And we live with people, and you can spot them, because it's the first thing they talk about when you get together and everybody's relaxed. It's the first thing they talk about. You get what makes people tick. And whatever that thing is, they'll be looking for it to deliver something. That's why it's the first thing on their mind. If you want to know what your lusts and your passions are, go and sit in that car park for five minutes and wait. Whatever your mind drifts to will be a very good hint as to what your lusts and passions are. And Jesus says, if they're a good thing, put them in their proper place, but don't you dare live for them. But don't be at the whim of your lusts and passions if you belong to him. Because he is your new master. And whereas those lusts and passions will never forgive you, and they will never satisfy, Christ has paid the price, and he will satisfy. What about the next one? Drunkenness. It's not rocket science, this one, isn't it? Don't drink too much. I'm not making this up. Look, drunkenness, bad. Getting drunk, bad. Why? Why? It, what, when, when you're drinking, what you're doing is you're trying to find something that will either give you confidence or will give you a refuge. So the place that only Jesus should have as your saviour, your deliverer, the one who gives you comfort and gives you refuge, you're saying, I'm going to delegate that power and responsibility to that bottle or to that substance. Jesus, you're not as powerful as that bottle and as that substance. You can't really be my comfort and you can't really be my refuge. And then immediately, you suddenly think on that, you think that goes way below mere drunkenness. It goes to anything we could be addicted to. And we almost make light of the things that we're addicted to, don't we? So perhaps it could be spending for comfort in a time of stress or refuge when I feel bad about myself. I'll go and blast off a load of money to make myself feel worth it. Perhaps it's food. Oh dear, hard day. I had particular experience with that. It could be... It could be the physical buzz of the endorphins from hard exercise. You're addicted to it. It's your release. It could be the release that comes from self-harm. It could be... It's anything... It's anything that you go to as your comfort or your refuge because Jesus can't cut it. And here we've been told, don't go there. When you go out from here today, just spot all the different ways in which people that you know who don't know Jesus show they're addicted and run for refuge and comfort for something. Next one, orgies. I'm not going to talk much about this except to say please parents, think very carefully about which music videos you think is a good idea for your kids to watch. Because though it may not be actually being there, there is an acting out in the head and the mind that warps and twists priorities. And I encourage you, adults, be very careful about what you watch on late night telly what you dream about as a result of it. Um, and I'm going to leave it at that. Okay? Next one. Here we go. Carousing. Does anybody know what that is? Drinking parties. The closest thing that we've got 
So that is, in the modern day culture, is a bar. Okay? This is talking about an arranged place where we meet to get hammered. Right. I ain't making this stuff up. Want to look? Okay? These are things that you've had enough time doing in the past, so don't go there living in carousing, drinking parties. I cannot, I'm not making it up. If, what does this mean? It means that if you're called to go to the works party at Christmas where the intention is to get hammered, don't go if you love Jesus. If you're called to a family celebration where you know the intent is to get hammered, don't go. I'm not making this up. If there's a girls' night out where the intention is everybody's going to go and get hammered, don't go. If it's a lad's night out or a stag do, and the intention is to go and get hammered, don't go. And you say, Steve, I'm trying to win these people and I love them. And if you do, then you've got a good attitude that is screwed up in terms of the way you've thought it through. Because we have this silly idea that the way that we win people is by being the same as them and going along and being all the places they are. You ask the Apostle Peter, read through the book again and again and again. He says the way that you win people is by giving an alternative lifestyle. If drinking parties are about the thing that you live for, what you do is you come aside and say, I love you, and I explain why. But I ain't going with you to those places because I am in no way want to be identified with or supportive of anybody who tries to get through their life by dulling it with drink and acting like an animal. So please, if you've got a family do or something like that, what you do is in advance you say, listen, you're really precious to me. And you figure out ways to show them how precious they are to you. But you say, in advance, just understand, I'll be leaving at 9 o'clock because around about 9 o'clock is the time where the drink kicks in and I don't want to be around drunken people. If you're a Christian and everybody else is staying out till three, and even some people have gone before, you shouldn't be the one who's sticking it out with the rest of them. You should have gone home way before that. Now, I'm not making this up. And I realise that whenever you open the Bible, listen, just point this out, okay? You guys have set me apart to unpack what this says, whether you like it or not. Go away and have a look. This is as plain as the text on the paper have nothing more to do with bars and drinking parties the intention is to go and get hammered. And people, what will happen? People will accuse you of being a Christian. People will get angry that you're living for a different set of things. People will perhaps not want to talk to you anymore and you'll get ostracised and cut off from the group. And the Apostle Peter will say, about time too. You see what's going on here? We're being told to be set apart and marked as different because we live for different things. And we'll explain to people why we do it that way, but we won't compromise. And if it means that we lose contact with people, then we trust that to the Lord. We're not supposed to try and be smarter than Jesus. If he says, this is the way I want you to give witness and testimony to the world, then that is how you do it, and you leave the results to him. You don't do it in a proud and cocky looking down your nose way at anybody. You do it with a broken heart, saying, I'm for you. I'm going to find a way to go out my way to show you that I'm for you. But I ain't going there. I ain't going there. One more. I think it sums all the others up. Detestable idolatry. 
which basically means you're a lord unto yourself and you do whatever you jolly well please. You do whatever you jolly well please. So into all of this, Peter is saying, arm yourself. Because it will be hard, verse 4. Look, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Don't, you you've got to live in such a way that you're, you're not surprised when people gossip about you and talk negatively about you behind your back or stop giving you invites. Because you being there exposes that there is a different and a better way to live. They will run you down, they will criticise you. So you need to have your armour on. That word there, strange, is the word xeno, where we get uh, xenophobic from. People will look on us and they will think us totally different, of a different nationality. They'll say, where? I don't get it. What? You don't tick the way I tick. You don't live for the same things I live for. I've got so little in common with you. And then I'll see you serving and being gracious and being patient. And when they talk badly about you, you don't talk back in a nasty way. You're loving, you're nurturing. And what will happen is one of two things. Either that relationship that you've had with that person will break down and dissipate over time. Or that person will get wonderfully converted. And Jesus will be brought lots of honour. What we do is we just pursue it the Jesus way. So I try to imagine a character. Uh, let's call him Cosius. Because he's not here. Okay? Matthew just, I looked at Matthew and he said, don't. He thought I was going to Matthew. So imagine the character is a new believer called Cosius. And he used to work as a household steward. He was a slave, but he was a household steward, so he was given a high level of authority. And his whole attitude was using his shrewdness to get money for the master, keep him paid off, and then sort of uh, try and twist things to make it as easy for himself as he possibly could. He would cook the books, he would do all those kind of things, get an angle. He used to hold grudges, particularly with the slaves who had a lower ranking of him. Uh, He would organise the drinking parties for the master and make sure that he was well provided with a few of the younger female slaves, just to keep him sweet and happy. And then Cosius, one day, hears about Jesus and gets wonderfully converted. The first thing he does is he confesses his sin to his master. And he says, oh, there's ways in which I've been cooking the books. And he gets a beating for it. But then the master thinks, oh, don't worry, this, this new faith that he's going through will wash over him and he'll come to his senses in a second. So, so the master, knowing that he's shrewd and wanting him to take responsibility in the house, he welcomes him back and he, he puts on a party and there's all the usual carousing and orgies that go along with what would have happened in the first century Greek culture. And just as Cosius walks in, he sees what's going on, the master welcomes him boldly in front of everybody and he says, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm a Christian now, I belong to Jesus, I can't be part of this. And of course all the, the, all the, the, the master's household is there so he can't lose face. So he says, oh, well, sure, he'll come round. So he sends a couple of the younger slave girls over Cosius's way, uh, just to try and entice them a little bit. But no matter how much the, this uh, seduction is going on, Cosius stands firm. And by the end of the next week, the master has sort of roused up all the other slaves to be mocking him. Uh, he gets demoted. He becomes the butt of everybody's jokes. He gets put on the lowest tasks. 
what has happened because Cossius has decided to follow the way of Jesus it means that he has lost his friends he's lost his standing his reputation is down in the mud all because he tried to serve and do the right thing do you see that? is that something that you're prepared to do for the sake of Jesus? if you're going to do that you're going to have to put your armour on you're going to have to be an armed resistance so quickly and finally I said it this one was a shorter one how you get that armed resistance three places you've got to look and they're all here in this text verse 1 you need to look back verse 1 look back Christ suffered in his body and you're in that moment and you're in that time of pressure where people are trying to conform you to their pattern and your sin is trying to run wild what you need to do is look back and say he died to liberate me from an empty way of life these people don't love me like they say they do my sin doesn't love me but Christ died for me he died to liberate me from this way of life now to liberate me from the wrath of God to come you think of that film do you remember the film Saving Private Ryan from about 15 years ago and there's this, this stage in the film where Private Ryan is one of five brothers in the Second World War, the other four, all of which have gone off to army, the other four brothers have all been killed, so the Americans say, we can't have all these five brothers dying, we're going to send an elite platoon to rescue Private Ryan from enemy-occupied forces. So they send in this platoon to rescue Private Ryan, and he is rescued by the end of the film, but at great cost, multiple of that uh, hit pl- uh, platoon are killed in the process of saving this one guy, and there's this terribly tragic scene at the end of the film, where he's standing in the graveyard, and he's there with him. He's an old man now, Private Ryan. He's got his family with him. And he breaks down in tears. And among the things that he says is, tell me I've lived a good life. And the sad thing about this is, there's a sense in which he feels he's got to have lived up to a standard to be able to look himself in the mirror, which he could never, because men have died for his life. But there's also a powerful sense there of a deep gratitude that he was given a new life. And it came at a great cost came at the cost of the lives of many men in that platoon. So when you're in that moment where you need to have an armed resistance, you need to realise that it wasn't a platoon that died for you. It was Jesus. The perfect, spotless Son of God, the Lord who reigns, He suffered in His body. Look back to that. Remember, what has your sin and the attitudes and the values of this world got on that. They won't die for you, but Jesus does and has. Arm yourself. Have an armed resistance by looking back at the cross. Second of all, look forward, verse 5. Can you see that, verse 5? Look forward. But they will have, have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It can seem like your desires and the empty way of living of this world is always winning. We're such a minority, aren't we? Is there ever going to be a day of reckoning? And the answer here is, yes, we feel like our struggle and our battle and the mockery we sometimes face and the defence will never end, but it will end. Because one day Jesus is going to come back and anybody who has shaken the fist at his offer of new life or lived as if they are the king in his world will be dealt with by the king and justice will be seen to be done. Can I tell you personally, this bit excites me the most. What happy day when Steve Casey won't feel the pull of betraying Jesus anymore? 
That won't be a battle of mine anymore. What a happy day it will be when I will no longer set my heart on stupid and vain things and seek refuge and comfort in them. I won't be duped anymore. Hallelujah. Some of you really feel the weight of how tossed and pulled and gapped you are by circumstances and your own heart's desire. That will have its day and it will soon be done. Happy day. You need to have a right fear of the fact that the Lord knows and he will be coming back and you don't mess with him and we will be fully liberated. Peace time is coming. Not yet, but it's coming. And finally, we need to look now at what God is doing now. You see it at the end of verse 6. We haven't got a time to unpack the fullness of verse 6, but the point comes clear at the end. For this very reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. We're being told that in the present now, there is God at work by His Spirit to give you power to live and stand for Him if you put your armour on. Are you being an armed resistance? Reebok says, life's short, so play hard. God's Word says, Life's short. Stop playing and get ready to meet God. He is with you now as you put up to your arms resistance. Now can I tell you this is all so much more than a nice idea and a nice sermon title. You need to put your weapon on. Pick it up now. How silly it would be if you go out on the street and some dude comes up to you and attacks you with a club and you say, stay away! Because my armour and sword and taser is locked safely away in the cupboard. Arm yourself. Be armed and armed resistance ready to welcome suffering for Jesus. Finish with a story about a fella who did that. Uh, his name is, great name, General Von Zealand. He was a general under the kingship of Frederick the Great. General von Zeeland was a believer. Frederick the Great was a mocker. On one occasion, Frederick the Great in his great hall was making coarse jokes, jokes in the room about Jesus Christ and the place was ringing out with laughter. We find then that Count, uh, sorry, General von Zeeland rose stiffly to his feet and the room quietened down and he began to speak. Sire, you know that I have not feared death. I have fought and won 38 battles for you. I am an old man. I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than thou. The mighty God who saved me from my sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you are blaspheming against. I salute thee, Sire, as an old man who loves the Saviour and is on the edge of eternity. And he quietly sat down. Frederick the Great stood to his feet and with a trembling voice said to General von Zeeland, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. And the company silently dispersed. I can't promise you that tomorrow when you put your armour on and be part of the armed resistance. 
But one day every mouth will be quieted before Jesus. And we who have loved him will be with him. And it will be awesome. We're going to stand and sing now of Church Arise. Which is a very fitting song to go with what we've just been hearing from God's words. Turn it into a prayer. As you sing it, think of the people that you're sitting alongside and you're sitting with. Pray these words and sing these words for their benefit and their encouragement too. Let's stand together and sing, O Church Rise. Um.